is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, May 1, 2021. Law Day. It's a lot of other days. Loyalty Day, International Workers Day, May Day. It's the start of spring, and we have a lot to talk about. It is show number 42. That's a lucky number for me. I hope it is for you. Jackie Robinson's number. We've got to talk about race. It comes up in the movie that keeps coming up throughout this show, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing's, Missouri. It comes up because Linda Sue Smolin, my guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, she bought two billboards outside of Boulder. She did it before the Boulder 10 were massacred. She did it to protest gun violence. She's back at it this time, the message hitting home, Linda Sue Smolin. Our song this week from our troubadour should be a number one hit. Your Way Too is about seeing things from a lot of perspectives. And it was my troubadour, Dave Gunders, who recommended that outstanding movie that won Academy Awards. Listen to the song. Listen to our discussion, including our discussion of cops being good and bad, humans the same way. Dr. Craig Farnsworth is all good. He's been good for so many Masters champions. Hideki Matsuyama, right before the last Masters, gets a putting lesson from my friend, the putt doctor, Dr. Craig Farnsworth. And where did he get that lesson? Denver, Colorado. Why? Because Craig Farnsworth, he worked in Denver for decades. He's here all the time when he's not teaching great pros like Dustin Johnson. Yes, he coached him to a Masters victory. And did I mention Sir Nick Faldo, personal friend? And he won Masters after seeing my buddy, Dr. Craig Farnsworth. Craig and Nick, how can you go wrong? It's a great show. Tune in. You will love it. Enjoy. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, kick around current events. And first of all, let's start with your name, because I don't meet a lot of people named Linda Sue. And that's one word. Am I right? It is. It's Linda Sue Smolin. It's one word. And how did that come about? It's probably one of the more benevolent things my parents did. All my sisters seem to have double names, but I just have one that's runs together, and it's a pretty special name for me. I think it's good because Linda and Linda Sue, Sue on its own is beautiful, but you would probably think, oh, you're probably Linda Susan Smolin, and no, you're not. You have a distinct spelling and two words combined into one. I bet there's a lot of confusion that's caused. Well, I wouldn't say confusion, but I get called lots of Double names. I could call Sue Ellen, Patty Sue, 
a variety of just different double names. Rarely do they get it right. And I'll say to people, you know, when I introduce myself, I said, you won't remember, but you'll remember it's a double name. You know, it's Peggy Sue. So I get a lot of varieties. I do answer to any double name. What a great name for a lawyer, though. Have you ever thought about exploiting the Sue part of your name? Nope. <laughs> I don't do personal injury. Shoot. Tell us what you do do and how you qualify for Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. When exactly did you graduate law school? Where and how did you pass the bar? I graduated law school in 1982, New England School of Law in Boston. And a couple of days after I graduated, I migrated out here. I had done an internship with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Denver after my second year of law school. I had one of my sisters lived in Boulder, and I came out and just never looked back, just loved Colorado. So here I am. And you've been living in Boulder, Colorado ever since, am I right? Ever since, since 1982. What is it about Boulder that is so attractive to you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in New York on Long Island and then went to law school for three years in Boston. Originally, and this may sound trite, is we were in federal court as law clerks. And what struck me more than anything, the comparison to Boston, was men had trousers on and a sports jacket they didn't have a suit or a three-piece suit on all the time. Men had cowboy boots on. Women had dresses on. And back east, you were issued a uniform. You wore blue, sometimes brown if you were feeling wild. But they were suits. You, They were just in gray. It was blue and gray suits were male and female. And so I sort of liked <laughs> that. sounds very trite, I know. I just sort of liked that part of it. I liked the outdoor activity. I was not any kind of athletic person. I started to run in law school after gaining 25 pounds my first year of law school. And I'm five feet tall. And I'm going to share with you, it's not overly attractive. And so out here, just it gave you the opportunity to just run and ride. And, you know, I learned to ski. And, and we're going to go right back to it. But the people who are listening are wondering what you look like now. And we were about the same age. I started in 81. And I just saw you on Nine News. And we will get to the story of your billboards. But you were rocking a bare midriff. And you looked like you're about, I don't know, 32, 33 years <laughs> old. So Whatever you do to maintain your weight and your personal appearance, you must still be doing it because you look fantastic. Well, that's very sweet of you to say. What I say is I'm boulder fit. I don't do anything unusual. In fact, I had a very severe injury in September. And so just in the past couple of weeks have I started to go back to running like one mile. And I just came in from a one mile run. And so I'm slowly getting back to where I used to be. But running, running swats keeps me fit more than anything. Nice. And I'm happy, thrilled that after seven months after an injury that I can sort of slowly get back to it. We're going to get to that because I think that the injury is related to your character. And we talked and I'm glad you were on the recovery trail. But tell us about your life in the law. Did you come from a family of lawyers? Anybody else? Oh, heavens. I'm one of five children, and 
I'm the only one to have gone to college. My parents didn't go to college. So I had taken four years off after high school and had some very, very interesting jobs in New York. And at some point, I just felt I needed to be educated. And so I went to back to or I went to college. I went to Hofstra University on Long Island. And I worked full time so my first year and juggled an awful lot. And I finished my undergrad in three years and then I said, gotta be something else. And so law school just seemed like the likely thing. I didn't have a reference point. I didn't know any attorneys. I didn't have anybody in my family. So it was a whole new world for me. I bet it was. And you've made a career of it. It's like a minefield practicing law. I've enjoyed it. What about you during your four decades? I can say that I have generally loved what I do. I feel like I was born to litigate and I'm very comfortable in a courtroom. And of course, the more you do it and the more you are skilled at your rules of evidence and direct and cross-examination, it's a very fun place to be. So I feel very, very, very lucky that I have really enjoyed and loved and have this passion about what I do. There's days where (laughs) I say I'd rather go back to being a waitress, but most times I feel really lucky to do what I do. Right. Speaking of luck, when you and I came out of law school, they had just adopted the rules of evidence, which we learned in law school, and the veteran lawyers had the old common law. That was lucky for us, I thought. Absolutely. I mean, I look at older attorneys, even older than me, and I am old, but they don't, especially male attorneys, and and they don't even know how to do electronic filing because somebody else does it for them, and that's all new, or even electronic research. And, you know, I'm sure like you, when I first started my own practice, we had to buy the entire library, physical books. Or go to CU Law School Library. I did many a night's research there. Yep, absolutely. And you would do that, and you'd trek down there, and You know, having online research is such a gem. It really makes researching and writing a thing of beauty. Like you can so easily find new cases and it makes it fun. Right. And then you can cut and paste instead of retyping everything. It's it's a beautiful thing. Yep. It is a beautiful thing. It's just really fun because it's sort of like a game, like how much can I find in the you know, do you have the right search words and or the search phrase? And I know that this morning I was drafting something and I looked for the same thing a month or so ago and I just had the wrong search words today. I had the right search words. I found it. I'm like, oh, I knew this case existed. So it's really fun and it's a, it's a great thing. And I, I'm sure young attorneys go, you mean you had to actually go and pull a book? in the library and then go to the copy machine and copy it and then type it into something. Yep. That's what we did for a long time. Right. And when you find a case right on point, it's a beautiful thing to find. The other day, they were complaining about my expert in a premises liability case because he cited OSHA and international building codes. And they said, those don't apply. And His reliance on those shows he's not qualified. Well, there's a case out of the Court of Appeals in Colorado that stands for the proposition, which after four decades, you just kind of intuit 
Well, maybe they don't apply, but they are instructive. It doesn't mean they don't come in under Rule 401 as relevant evidence. And there was a case right on point, and I did not know that until I started to respond to something another attorney had submitted. So thank you for letting me brag on that. But I want to brag on you. And by the way, your practice, if I understand it, half criminal defense, half family law? Correct. And in a lot of cases, it's one and the same because you might have an abusive husband who needs divorcing. Or an alleged abusive I'm husband. I'm saying it could happen any which way, right? You've That's seen right. it all. Yeah. And they do, they do go hand in hand. I, I joke that there's not much difference between divorce litigation and criminal defense. And there really isn't. People laugh at it, but they're very similar. And they do go hand in hand. And it is very often that you have the crossover. Right now, I have a client who had four criminal cases. And my position, of course, is that it was a vindictive ex-wife with the divorce. And we just prevailed a little too well in the divorce case. But she just kept lodging criminal cases and we'd win or we'd get one dismissed or three of them dismissed. And you do a plea bargain to one count out of a total of 19. And they'd go hand in hand. You just can't. And what I've said to the court in closing arguments recently in those cases, this case is not an island. It's like the Florida Keys. And you can't get to Key West unless you go through all the other islands first. And that's what this was like. There was a divorce case, and there's motions to restrict, and there's then a criminal case, and that one gets dismissed, and then there's this false allegation and that false allegation. And I'm here to tell you that there's a lot of false allegations. Nobody, nobody likes domestic violence. I've asked a lot of people. But there's a lot of false allegations, and they usually come when there's a custody case. And that's just hard for judges because they, they don't want to think that women lie, and women lie. More than men? I don't know the answer to that. We don't like to think children lie. We don't like to think women lie, but they do. That's just a reality. And it's usually women who are filing cases alleging some sort of abuse or harassment. And it is, I'm not going to say often, but it is a fair amount of the time done to gain a legal advantage in the divorce and custody case. Now, I am listening. This is fascinating to me. Is most of your practice representing men involved in family conflict? I don't choose. I don't say I, know, I just but represent. but how does it work out for you? I represent a lot of men. Well, that's good. And after nearly four decades, you've seen patterns emerge. And I did, too. When Kobe Bryant got charged with rape, I was quoted because I was fresh from the DA's office that any big city prosecutor or detective will tell you that there are a lot of false accusations of sexual improprieties. I don't know why it happens. There's a long list of reasons. I just know that it does. And honest yep. detectives will tell you that. And it's kind of not politically correct to speak about it. I feel that That's I right. can because I prosecuted so many rapists. I've always yep. said rape is an abomination, but so is a false accusation of rape. That's right. You start with a false narrative, and what I ask juries in voir dire is, how do you prove a negative? And you can't. And I put them on the spot, and I make them think, and 
how do you prove it? And false allegations. We used to have a DA in Boulder many years ago, and she's now a judge in another county. And she had decided to take all the DV cases, and we thought she was nuts, and that's what she did. But she would, she'd wait until the last minute, but she would dismiss those dog cases. And on the rare occasion, she would file false reporting against the alleged victim when she could demonstrate that they were lying. And power to her for doing that. And I appeared in front of her about a year after she became a judge. And it was a civil case. It had something to do with service of process. And I had to bring my process server in. And it was clear that the woman was lying and she was served. And this judge said one of the hardest parts of her job being a judge is realizing how often women lie. She said this on the bench, on the record. And she said, you know, my life, my world before I became a judge was essentially representing women and for all practical purposes as a DA. And it was hard on her. And so when they start to see the other side, but often you're a DA, I think they have blinders on and they don't want to see that a woman can lie. No matter what you give them, they don't want to believe it. It's very difficult. It can destroy men's lives. And that's just not fair. Right. Everybody sees things a different way, but it's important for you to make sure your eyesight is correct, that you are looking at the right things. And the way you came to my attention, Linda Sue Smolin, was after, I think it was Parkland, you made sure that everybody saw your message about gun control by buying billboards. Imagine highways using traffic laws written in 1791. Just south of the city of Boulder. Imagine limiting yourself to medical care available in 1791. Sitting in open space. The Second Amendment was written in 1791. Her words that hover over a busy highway are hard to miss. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. This is the message Linda Sue Smolin put on a billboard soon after 10 people were shot and killed at a Boulder King Supers. People in your community, people that you knew, were executed in the grocery store. That's not right. She has purchased billboards before, but this time felt more personal. I have lived in Boulder for 39 years. It didn't surprise me, as terrible as that sounds. I think it's going to happen in almost every community. Um, it's just a matter of time. Time is what Smolin is focusing on, the year 1791. Things were very different in 1791 when the Second Amendment was written. That's what I want them to take away. She hopes her message drives conversation, even get people outside her community talking. I am not looking, and I don't think anybody is, to take people's guns away from them. Her sign is off State Highway 93. A second one with the same message is north of Denver. It's close to $10,000 for the two. If it brings about a discussion about reasonable gun control, then it's money well spent. It's a price Smolin is willing to pay again to bring attention to the change she's looking for. Sure, there's anger and why something can't get done to again reenact the assault weapon ban. In Boulder, I'm Kelly Rinke, Nine News. Tell everybody about that. 
Yep, that was in 2018. The first ones went up, and there was just one you know, mass execution after another, and that is what I call them. I don't call them mass murders. I don't call them mass shootings. They are executions, and everybody's like, oh, this is awful, and thoughts and prayers are with the family, and nothing. Absolutely nothing got done. I said it then, I'll say it now. I never thought this was a political issue because it's not a Republican issue, it's not the Democrats, it's inertia. And things can't get done. For a long time it was the power of the NRA, and now it's what I will call the extremists, the right-wing extremists who think that they have this unfeathered right to have any kind of gun. And it's not my desire to take their guns away from them, but it is to restrict assault weapons. And there's already what they say, well, you can't do that. The Second Amendment, well, those 32 words, you know, you can read into them. And, of course, the Heller opinion gave life to individuals' rights to bear arms. But it also came with a lot of caveats. And it suggests that a ban on carrying concealed weapons is lawful. And that's a restriction. That's a restriction. And the prohibitions on possessing firearms by felons and the mentally ill, that, that's a restriction. Laws forbidding the carrying of firearms to sensitive places like schools and government buildings, that's a restriction. And imposing conditions and qualifications on commercial sales of weapons. And the ban on dangerous and unusual weapons. Right, That's but, what Heller said. Let's give everybody the bad news. Antonin Scalia, may he rest in wherever right now, he right. decided that there was an individual right to weapons, and that included weapons in common use. Even when he died many years ago now, the AR-15 was one of the most popular weapons. Now it's the most popular, and it's an assault weapon. One yep. that Denver banned quite a while ago, and it was upheld when the Supreme Court tied decision, and now Boulder tried to restrict guns in the wake of Parkland, and a judge up in your neck of the woods said, no, you don't have the authority. And then within a week or two, a guy with an AR-15 walks into the King Supers in Table Mesa and executes 10 people. Is that your King Supers, Lyndon Sue? It isn't. I'm in North Boulder. That's in South Boulder. But he just walked in. I mean, they're, he's having a bad day. Let me just go. And he had a high-capacity magazine, which have been banned in Colorado. That's a restriction. And the Supreme Court in Colorado, when they issued that opinion, they cited Columbine, they cited the Aurora Theater as reasons to limit and restrict large capacity magazines for assault weapons and automatic weapons. And so there are restrictions. You can't go into a school, a government building, a sports arena, airport. I agree. But cutting to the chase, you can't really think that given Trump's three appointments of three mini Scalia's, that they are going to rule that AR-15s are prohibited. Really, I don't think that's going to happen unless we add some more justices to the court. Maybe that's what we do to bring that balance back. For 10 years, there was a ban on assault weapons from 94 to 2004. And you know, the country didn't devolve into tyranny and like, oh, you know, we, we have to protect ourselves from the government. It didn't happen. We can have that ban again. 
it can be reenacted. And that's where we have to start. I mean, there is a rash of little bills that are coming out, you know, like you have to keep your guns locked up when there's children around. You know, it's a very reasonable restriction. You have to report it if a firearm is stolen. I've previously disclosed that I represent Darian Simon, who is the victim in that shooting of his beloved fiance, Isabella Thales. And that's another assault weapon case. And it's repulsive to me. But do you think an assault weapon ban is lawful? Is it possible? I do think it's lawful. It was lawful once before. And I do think it's possible. There's two things. So one is that I know that's an uphill battle, but that let's face it, that's where the executions are coming from, from assault weapons. And it's not a time of war. They are war weapons. You don't take a deer rifle to go to war and you don't take a war weapon to go deer hunting. They're two different things. You can have your weapons and your guns to go hunting, but I haven't heard of anybody using an assault weapon to go hunting because they don't. I don't understand, of course, the attraction to them, but people have that attraction. But it's really that they are designed to inflict a massive amount of damage as quickly as possible. Bodies are shredded. It's not like it's a bullet and somebody falls down. They are shredded. And I think I have said people should know what an AR-15 does to a body. Right. And last week I had on Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, who wrote a great column about that very thing. And she brought up seeing your billboards, because when this atrocity hit your hometown, Linda Sue, I thought you would do it. And darned if you didn't, you put up some billboards again. Tell everybody how many and what they say. Right now I have two up. One is outside of heading south out of Boulder, and the other is on... South on Highway 93? Yep, south on Highway 93. And the other is outside of Denver, north of Denver. I think by the Firestone exit is probably the closest thing. Well, God bless you. How much does it cost you? Well, I just re-upped for the one in Boulder, and they are, with the artwork, it is, the two of them came out to a little bit less than $10,000. And, you know, I have a GoFundMe, which has paid for a lot of it. Where do we find it on GoFundMe? Let's see. So you can probably just find my name or... Smolen, um, S-M-O-L-L-E-N. Probably yep. Smolen oh. Billboard. That's probably a good way to get there. Yep, or I think the other way could be billboards for reasonable gun control is what I generally have it under. I feel that what I want to do is keep a discussion going as to why assault weapons are in this country, why we have them so available. What else can we do besides have assault weapons? And, and so I think there can be and there has been reasonable restrictions and Canada has some very interesting laws. They're not perfect, but treat it like a driver's license or a car registration. And you have to take a test, you have to pass the test, you have to register it, you have to have insurance, you have to pay tax on it, you have to take a test every year, you have to pay tax on it every single I year. I agree. But you don't have time to put 
all that on a billboard. Tell people what you put on there because you are a litigator, a storyteller. You're trying to get people to think. What words did you use? The first ones are about the amount of people killed every year by guns, including suicides, and it exceeded the amount of people in all of the wars. And this one was just to imagine having traffic regulations that were written in 1791. Imagine having internet and TV that was regulated by rules in 1791. Imagine using health care that was only available in 1791. And the Second Amendment was written in 1791. I end all of them by saying thoughts and prayers are not enough. Thoughts and prayers are great, but they're not enough. They're not doing anything. Because if thoughts and prayers were doing something, we wouldn't have Execution after execution after execution. I mean, when first and second graders get executed in their classroom and nothing was done in this country. Well, God bless you, Linda Sue, because you did something. Where did you get this idea? Was it from the Academy Award-winning movie, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri? It was, and I thought, you know what? She was so pissed off. And she couldn't get anybody to listen to her. And I just said, yeah, you can do it. I mean, I am an outspoken person, and yet you just can't. There's lots of outspoken people. There, I have met some amazing people because of my billboards that are involved in gun violence prevention. And whether it's Moms Demand Action, whether it's Peace Jam, amazing organizations. And everybody makes little tiny inroads. But nothing really is happening because we have executions weekly, whether it's in a spa, a movie theater, a classroom, a grocery store, a concert. They happen over and over again, you know, and in their workplaces, whether it's FedEx. And why don't I have a right? Just like they think they have this unfettered right to have assault weapons and have a bad day and go and execute people. Why don't I have a right to live peacefully. I have that right, and I should have that right. I shouldn't have to worry and look over my shoulder all the time. People should feel free to go to the grocery store or a movie theater and not worry. Do these billboards make you look over your shoulder more? Mildred Hayes, the star of three billboards portrayed by Academy Award winner Frances McDormand, she caught quite a bit of blowback for her billboards. What about you? Well, I get the haters. And the first round of billboards in 2018 and 2019, I had a lot of haters. And this time, it would take big balls for somebody to really dump on bolder people for being anti-gun right now. I mean, you know, they should probably sit this one out. So I have I had probably way more positive comments and support, really wonderful stuff. You know, I get the haters and, you know, what I feel with some of them that I will engage, but, you know, it's like talking to people that believe the world is flat. You're not going to change their mind and they almost always devolve into name calling. And I won't even repeat some of the things they say about me that are just unbelievable. At this point, I go, If that's all you can do, it is the lowest form of debate is personal attacks. And I've always said, you want to argue with me on the merits? Let's do it. But no name calling, no disparaging comments, 
no personal attacks. If you can keep with that, I'm happy to debate the Second Amendment with you. And what they'll do is they'll try to get you off the rails and say, well, what about abortion or what about mental health? And I, I say, you know, my issue is gun control. And if you feel that strongly about abortion or mental health, I encourage you to put up billboards. Go for it. I'm all for it. But I won't let somebody get me off the rails. Because once you let them say, well, what about abortion? Isn't that killing? You can't give that argument validity because they'll get you down the rabbit hole. I have my position. I know what I'm here for. It is to talk about and raise awareness about gun violence and what it does to this society and to see if we can control it. And what can we do? There have to be reasonable regulations. Why did you come to this cause? It was first and second graders being massacred and executed in their classroom. The visual of that, I'm not a mother, and I cannot even imagine what those parents still feel like in Sandy Hook. I can't fathom the loss. And it's just not right. And that's all it is. I do not have a personal attachment to anything related to gun violence. It is just so horrific for me to watch this happen and watch what's happened to our country and watch that it was taken over by right-wingers who somehow feel that they should be able to walk down the street with an AR-15 strapped across their chest. And how do you know who's the good guy and the bad guy? How do you know that person doesn't have mental health issues? Personally, I think if you're walking down the street with an AR-15 strapped across your chest, you do have mental health issues. You walk into a Walgreens or a Walmart with a gun like that, there's something wrong with you. I agree. I admire you and your gumption. A lot of people talk about things, but you went out and did something. And you put to use the skills of a Colorado lawyer of almost four decades. You have the legal arguments. You have the storytelling ability. I commend you on what you are doing. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. Now, tell everybody about your accident, because it's part of your problem and your beautiful soul. That gumption, you take on challenges that most people would not. Tell everybody what happened to you. In September, I was rafting in the Grand Canyon, and we hit a extremely large wave in one of the rapids, and there were three of us in the raft, and somehow my body got whiplashed into the metal frame of the raft, and I broke my back in three places and cracked my pelvis and tore the tendon off my hip and hamstring tears and lots of muscle damage. And was helicoptered out in my first helicopter ride, quite an adventure. So that was seven months ago, and it's the second time in my life that I've broken my back. I did it 25 years ago in a rollover accident, a car accident. And, you know, people say, oh, I, I can't believe that, that, you know, you can do this and you're okay. And, you know, I think most people would do it. Sure, I spent months in a full body brace, and you just put one foot in front of the other. And I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor. And maybe if I had a victim mentality, I would approach this very different. I would say, oh, why me? Instead, I say, nope, my job is to get better, 
get healthy. I am the eternal optimist. I I signed up for a half marathon at the end of June, and I went out and ran a mile today, and I certainly think that I will be able to run this half marathon in two months. Gosh, I admire your gumption. And that's what it's about, getting up off the mat, just doing it a day at a time. And look at you, you're going to run a half marathon and then another marathon. Do you think you'll ever go back, I assume, on the Colorado River, cutting through the Grand Canyon? I would absolutely do that if I was invited. (laughs) When I had a high-speed rollover accident on Peña Boulevard, and the car flipped five or six times, and I wasn't breathing, I didn't have a pulse. When they pulled me from the car, I was critically injured. Not a single person ever asked me, are you ever going to get into a car again? It is one of the most dangerous things you can do. The accident on the Grand Canyon was a freak accident. Yes, I would go down the Grand Canyon again. We are going to talk some more. I have a troubadour on my show. He has a great song this week, and he recommended three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. I loved that movie. My wife just watched it. She loved it. What was it about that movie that got to you? Oh, boy. I think, you know, it probably has to do with me being a criminal defense attorney and the injustice that I see happen to people. People take plea bargains because they can't afford to go to trial or because risks are too high or because the DA has overcharged. And, you know, I fight for the underdog. I mean, I have for 40 years. And I think that that movie was the same thing. Nobody would listen to her, and she was the underdog, and she was like, I'll be goddamned if I'm just going to let this happen, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to get somebody's attention. And that's what you have to you have to do. You have to be the gadfly. You have to stand up. You cannot be silent when this injustice is happening all around you. I had a judge just the other day. The DA said something, and it's a case that I'm, you know, one of my very many cases that I take personally. And the judge said, Ms. Simone, do you have a response, a measured response? Because I, I go off the rails in the courtroom. I feel very strongly about things, and I'm not hired to make friends with the other side. I'm not hired to be a wallflower. I need for the court to understand that my client, there's injustice happening. So, I mean, I think in that movie, it was the same thing. In the movie, the cops were bad. They were racist. They were corrupt. They were stupid. And yet in Boulder, we had Eric Talley run into the Boulder King Supers, give his life. You work with cops as a criminal defense attorney. I was part of their team for 16 years in law enforcement. And make no mistake, DAs and police, they work together. And 99% of the time, they have a common goal, which is to convict your client. So what do you think about all the police issues? Derek Chauvin just convicted, other things occurring in our neighborhood. Loveland, the arrest, the officer just got fired. Do you need to be arrested right now? No, no, no. Okay. Let's stop. Come on. Come on. I'm going She's doing pretty well. Um, It seems that this has taken a huge toll on her, and you can tell that she's been affected by this. Um, She doesn't understand at all why it happened. 
Um, you can tell that it's made the damage worse. No, 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 stay on the ground. Stay on the ground. On the ground. On the ground. The video was taken at the Loveland Police Department the day Karen Garner was arrested by officers Austin Hopp and Daria Jalali. Garner's lawyer, Sarah Schelke, says she had the audio enhanced and added captions to make it more clear. According to Schelke, the video starts off with officers Hopp and Jalali talking about Garner's arrest. I'm going the video then shows Hopp and Jalali watching body camera video of the incident, at times laughing and seeming to celebrate while Karen Garner was just a few feet away, according to her lawyer, in pain and handcuffed to a bar in a holding cell. I'm here. <laughs> Shelke says the most disturbing part of the video was when Officer Hop said, ready for the pop? Here comes the pop. A reference apparently to the officers dislocating Garner's shoulder and breaking a bone in her arm. Shelke also points out that the officers talked in the video about a blue team report, which police departments use to document use of force. Shelke says that proves that Loveland police leadership must have known about the incident soon after it happened last summer, despite putting out a press release to the contrary after she filed a federal lawsuit last week. I'm somehow even more disgusted. She loves all of her kids, all of her grandkids. Elisa Swartz is Karen Garner's daughter. She says her mother's dementia has worsened since the incident and she has little to no memory of what happened. It doesn't make any sense why they did what they did. But Swartz says she will never forget the physical pain that Loveland police inflicted on her mother and the emotional pain they've caused her entire family. I feel like there needs to be some major changes within the police department, and I feel like there needs to be some jail time for those police officers. What do you make of all this, Linda Sue? A tempest in a teapot or a teapot? Well, good question. I think, let me just digress for a second with Officer Talley. And when I have the haters online say, well, imagine if you didn't have the right to vote or if you'd imagine if the First Amendment right, blah, blah, blah. And I say, imagine if Officer Talley's seven children still had a father. And they say, well, what if, every, if everybody was armed in King Supers? I say, you know, Officer Talley was armed and trained. He was executed. Right, but he was the last one, would be their retort. Yeah. So what I think, what's happening now, you know, I know, is that there is the code of honor with police officers, and they get away with it. They get away with lying. And I'm sure you have stories, I have stories of police officer in Boulder who forgot that he was wearing a body cam. I had it. And he gets up there and he testifies. And DA directs him, I get up there, so I want to make sure he repeats everything a second time. And then I open my computer and bring up the body cam. And he physically just sort of, you know, slumped in his chair, like, uh-oh. And he was too lazy to watch it before he testified and just thought he was going to be able to get up there and say anything. And said, oh, oh, yeah, I just tapped on his window and told him to open it. And you could hear him taking his baton and just smashing it onto the window, saying, open the fucking window or I'm going to break the fucking window. I'm glad and... you said fuck, because that is such <laughs> a part of all of these incidents. You don't yeah. really decelerate a situation by saying, 
fuck and motherfucker, get out of it. Right. When you start right. yelling those things, it's an accelerator, yep. not a decelerator. Yep. And they need people skilled in decelerating these situations. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great way to put it. When you start with that kind of language and everybody ups the ante, you know, it's just a horrific situation all of a sudden. And, you know, you have this cop saying, oh, yes, and then he opened the door. I told him to open it. And you see on the body cam the police officer's hand on the handle opening the door. And thankfully we had a judge who called him out on it and a written order and why he was granting the motion to suppress and the lies, one lie after another, after another, after another. But that's not an easy thing to do. And unless there's a body cam, it's not happening. We take police officers' words. There are tons of great, honest police officers out there. Don't get me wrong. But it's the bad seas that really do ruin it. And there has to be more training. I think, I don't know, maybe it's too much of a Pollyanna on my part to think that maybe there is a change coming. Maybe cops will be more responsible. But it just happened in Loveland. And you have these body cams. You have cameras in the jail. They're watching things happen. And whether police officers forget that the camera is on, but that's the only way people are getting convicted or taken to accountability is because there's a camera. Right. And that's unfortunate. The Colorado just mandated every police department needs those body cams and it has to happen soon. I welcome them. As a criminal defense attorney, I welcome body cams. It will make my job that much easier. I know, but my God, sometimes we have to spend night and day watching one body cam after another. (laughs) Isn't it time-consuming? It's it's crazy sometimes. It is. Uh, I had one where I just did a a frame shot. I I watched the body cam and I took a picture of my client because, you know, the police officer, the typical DUI, you know, bloodshot glassy, watery eyes, you know, they just punch a button and it all fills in. And I have a picture of my guy and close-up of his eyes, perfect. And thank God for the body cam. It makes the job easier for a lot of reasons. Either it's going to show that your client is quite guilty or they're not, as opposed to trying to impeach a police officer on the stand. Not an easy thing to do. Well, you've been great, Linda Sue. I am so glad we are back in touch, although I'm sorry it's under these circumstances in Boulder, Colorado, Table Mesa King Supers. And now it's been more than a month and it's blurred into the background. And Eric Talley's name will become a memory, a blessed memory, but a memory. And it's hard to remember all 10 of the people. I'm thinking about Terry Liker, the woman who worked there 30 years. And her love story, but I can't remember all the names. And then you've got Columbine, you've got Aurora. And that was the beautiful point that you made, which is it's not Boulder. It's not, it's everywhere. And we have to deal with this because I don't want my children or grandchildren to experience this. And I so admire you, Linda Sue, that you care about my children and you cared about those kids at Sandy Hook Parkland. So do I. God bless you. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda Sue. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye. 
gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887, or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Troubadour, my troubadour, this is a special occasion. Do you know why? Tell me, Craig. It's show number 42. Wow. My number back in the day in the high school hoop, 42. Jackie Robinson's number. It's always been lucky for me. And in the history of our recording together, I don't think we've had a recording session preceded by food. No. Thanks for my health food. Now, tell everybody about your double stack from Wendy's. I got it for you because it's not courtesy of me. It's free every time Nikola Jokic has a double-double, <laughs> which is practically 95% of the time the Nuggets play. And if he doesn't get one, someone will. So all you have to do is order one thing and you get a free double. I did pay for your fries, though. Well, thank you and Jokic then. And I'm thanking you. Do you know why? Because you gave me, first of all, your song this week, and we will get to that. It's epic. I think it's the number one hit. Your way too, or as I call it, if you could afford four words instead of three, see your way too. Because our show today is, we've got an eye doctor, we've got billboards that people are looking at. It's perfect. And your lyric, you know, try to see it my way too. But we'll get to that. So thank you. And you used a word on our walk the other day that was just right and it stunned me. Do you remember which? I, let's see. I don't. Anachronism. Oh, okay. And you were exactly right. It's something out of time. Right. That's what Linda Sue Smolin says about the Second Amendment. It was written in 1791 when a musket was the worst you could do. So it's anachronistic. Tell that to the originalists, right? Who look at this Constitution almost as a uh, evangelist looks at the Bible. Scully is dead, so I can't say it to him. But even if he was alive, he was equally unmovable. And I fear the Republicans are. And that may lead to more court justices because we can't keep living like this. And when you get fed up, you do something about it. And during our walk, when I told you about Linda Sue Smolin putting up billboards, you said, Craig, have you seen three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri? And it was a gap for me. I know it got a lot of awards. 
sell Mildred Hayes? Why did you put up these billboards? My daughter Angela was murdered seven months ago. It seems to me the police department is too busy torturing black folks and eating Krispy Kremes to solve actual crime. Dixon, I'm in the middle of my goddamn Easter dinner. Sorry, kids. I know, Chief, but I think we got kind of a problem. Sunshine beating on the good time. I'd do anything to catch your daughter's killer. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. I saw you on TV the other day. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you look good. I mean, you came across really good. I think that guy wants to get my pants. And because you are my troubadour and I admire your artistic taste, I had to go get it. And it was right there on my TV, free in my Xfinity package. I watched it, and it touched me. How did you know? Well, because you're a guy whose heart is not far below the surface. Is that what, that's why. And it really, that, that movie was... It, it really reaches out on, on a number of different, different levels. It's, it's, it's a tragic movie, it's, and it's a movie about transformation for more than one of the characters. Right, and it's got an ending that people wrestle with. I like that. But it's also got humor, and it's crude, and it's violent. And the characters are so complex, hard, and human. It's the human condition, right? Mm-hmm. Woody Harrelson really, you know, he's come a long way since Cheers. I'd do anything to catch the guy who did it, Mrs. Hayes, but when the DNA don't match no one who's ever been arrested, and when the DNA don't match any other crime nationwide, and when there wasn't a single eyewitness from the time she left your house to the time we found her, well, right now there ain't too much more we can do. Could pull blood from every man and boy in this town over the age of eight. There's civil rights laws prevents that, Mrs. Hayes. And what if he was just passing through town? Pull blood from every man in the country, then. And what if he was just passing through the country? If it was me, I'd start up a database. Every male baby what's born, stick him on it. And as soon as he'd done something wrong, cross-reference it, make 100% certain it was a correct match, then kill him. Yeah, well, there's definitely civil rights laws prevents that. I'm doing everything I can to track him down. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. But I'm glad you got your priorities straight. I'll say that for you. What an actor that yeah. guy is playing, yeah. Bill Willoughby. Have you thought about that name? No. Do you know whether this is a true story or not? I do not. The guy who wrote it, he was driving through the Midwest and saw billboards castigating local law enforcement over a bad crime not solved. And he just kept thinking about it. And he constructed a fictional story around it. And one of the giveaways is three billboards, which is interesting if your name is Bill, which Woody Harrelson was Bill. And he was castigated with calling out Chief Willoughby. Willoughby, another variation of Bill, right? So it's, it's three billboards, and he was a complex character. But what about Sam Rockwell as Dixon? He won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, and I can see why. Right, right. At first, he was just a, an idiot, and he, too, 
saw through all of the events, had to turn inward and look at himself and ask some serious questions. And his mama, my God, she was tough duty. And you have to look behind the behavior a lot of times. Why, why are people acting like this? And that movie illustrated, my gosh, what a dysfunctional community and set of families. Yet it was all of us, not to that degree, I hope, but you know what I'm talking about. Sure, yeah. His mother was one, I think, that was probably beyond any hope for turning around. Redemption. Well, for, for reconsideration of her own opinion. She was, she, was, she was the kind of person, I think, that would take it all to the grave as far as her steadfast thoughts on things. And to set it in Missouri, which is kind of part of the South. Missouri is the state they were really arguing about. And Mama Dixon, she was happy being part of the South. And there was such racism, and the cops were all stupid, corrupt. But in the end, Dixon and Willoughby, were they heroic? Were they not? That's why I think the ending was, I don't want to give it away, it's sort of deliberately vague because people are vague and not all good or bad, except for you, Troubadour. How did you come to write such a masterpiece, see it your way too? I don't know about the masterpiece part. It's just, it's a song about putting yourself in someone else's shoes. How did you write it? When did you write it? What inspired it? It was probably written, I don't know, sometime in the last five years. And like so many of my songs, it came out of a conversation I had with my wife or my daughters. I think it's about your daughters. And you gave it away at the start. Because you write that you've known from the start, like you watched this child emerge, and maybe they have a different point of view, so try to see it your way too, but it's not just the words, Troubadour. The music here, it's fantastic. Where did you get the orchestra? This song I produced a little more than most in the sense that it has horns, and I think I've only put horns on a couple of my songs, but that's maybe the orchestra you're talking about. It's a fuller sound. And the drums, it sounded like more than one layer of drums. No, one layer of drums, organ, guitars. Was there a cello or a bass? And toward the beginning, I'm thinking, is that an organ? Is that a horn? Is that bass? Is that a... I just didn't know. But guess what? You might not remember, you're so prolific. <laughs> I think that's one of your best. Let's let everybody listen. Your Way Too by Dave Gunders. Thank you, Troubadour.
see it your way It's been almost 40 years that I've been a lawyer, graduated CU Law in 1981, and began immediately. I am now with the law firm of Springer and Steinberg. Jeff Springer, a renowned civil attorney, one of the best in America. Harvey Steinberg, preeminent criminal defense attorney. We do it all at Springer and Steinberg, way over a dozen lawyers, If you need legal help, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800, ask for Craig. We can deal with your legal situation and make it better. Thank you. If I had to guess, that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kids' education, my grandchild's education. And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways and not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he, how much he's worth now, you know, what. 
Well, say he's got $2 billion, and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's going to be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes. But if you're charitably inclined, it certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael, and I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done, and they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Craiger, how are you? Good. Good, good, good on this early morning. <laughs> Earlier in California, gosh, you live in a beautiful spot. The Palms, that picture you have at puttdoctor.com, it's thrilling to a guy who's looking out his window at gray skies. <laughs> lick, lick your chops, right, Craig? Oh, boy. How are you, my friend? I am just fine, thank you for asking. And you are going to have to come out and see us one of these yes. days. Yes, how's Marianne? Marianne's fine. She's enjoying life and does her social stuff and just perfect. (laughs) I had a thrilling day reviewing all your success. And I know you are a veteran at podcasting now. Sorry we don't have video too, because you are looking very handsome these days. Well, thank you. You can do a lot with social media, you know. You have done a lot with technology, and I think that's part of it. You're non-tech, but you are tech, and you've been doing it for a long time, Craig Farnsworth. Tell everybody about your background, where you grew up, and how you found your way to Colorado and now to California. Well, sure, Craig. I grew up in Indiana and uh, went to Indiana University School of Optometry. My dad was a golf pro in later life, so we spent our uh, summers working the golf course and then playing golf. So that's how I put myself through college, and family obviously was a big part of that. And then went in the Army during the Vietnam War and was an eye doctor, coached the basketball team and played on it, coached the golf team and played on it, and then moved to Colorado and was an eye doctor there for 30 years in Europe area in Lakewood, Colorado at the South Lakewood Medical Dental Building. And in that time, I started becoming involved with children's vision and found out that working with children and doing 
eye exercises that a lot of them got better in sports. And we started migrating to helping athletes and ended up being a Denver Nugget eye doctor for eight years, working with them on visual skills to improve their shooting and their concentration. And then we went on to work with the Olympic Training Center, and I started the first vision testing and performance laboratory with several optometrists down there. And that still is ongoing in, in several ways. And from that, the shooting team got me involved with the Secret Service instructors, and then Secret Service instructors got me involved with the Delta Force commando trainers. And so we worked with them on visual mental skills, and they used my program for uh, training. And all that time, we just kept migrating more and more toward golf. And then Jim McLean gave me a chance to work at the brand new PGA West Academy he had. So we decided to jump ship and move to California in the Palm Springs area and been working putting ever since. So tough life. (laughs) Hello, I'm Dr. Craig Farnsworth, the putt doctor. Welcome to the beautiful Palms Golf Club in La Quinta, California, my teaching residence. I look forward to seeing you soon as a student in one of my clinics on putting, green reading, or mental focus. Let me share a few details of why my visually-based approach will improve your golf game. You're a hard worker, and gosh, you should write a book. I'd say that, but you've already written two bestsellers, See It and Sink It. Do I have it right? It's on my shelf somewhere. Correct. Yes, that was the original. 1997, as I recall. Oh, yeah, exactly. That was a book that talked about drawing a line on the ball. So that was the first time that was ever introduced. And then we wrote a book in... Uh... Stop it a second, Craig, because we've got to look out for each other. Because when you were in Colorado, we played a lot of golf together. We have mm-hmm. good friends together. Gosh, I liked you. And I'm remembering why, because my two favorite things are basketball and golf. And I love it. In Indiana, is it required that everybody love basketball? Uh, <laughs> we learned to dribble a basketball before we dribble out of our mouth, I think, Greg. <laughs> so, yes. But really, the two sports are really about getting the ball in the hole. And you made the great discovery yeah. about the eyeball being an integral part of it. It's logical, but Let's just stop there, because I'm not really a sports show or a science show, but is there a more fascinating organ in the body than the human eye? It's got to be amazing to study it. Do you feel like you've got it mastered, or are there new developments all the time? Yeah, I say that we constantly learn more and more about the eye, but we're visual creatures, and basically around 85% of what the brain takes in for information to deal with during the day is vision. And we're anatomically and physiologically a visual creature. So you've got to have good visual skills and visualization to play sports. And most athletes we test are incredibly motor skilled and visual skilled. So the accuracy of the visual system is what we work with. And even though you may think you see a cup accurately 30 feet away, most people see it short and left or short and right. And that's where they putt to. And that's the job of sports vision optometrists and like myself to get the player to start localizing the target more accurately in space. Even though they see it clearly, they don't locate it clearly. That's why you see a lot of problems in basketball with shooters. 
especially different parts of the court. And that's why I see even a lot of tour players who think they line up properly. Just had one yesterday, and he said, wow, that was the most eye-opening session he'd ever had, which was a good pun intended. Back in the day, didn't we call it hand-eye coordination? I don't hear that term as much these days. Well, we hope we call it eye-hand. The eye tells the hand where to go. So football players and basketball players that are said they have bad hands really have bad visual skills, and they don't give the hand accurate information of when the uh, ball's getting there. So, yeah, training the eye is a lot better than training the hand. We're going to get to all the great golf pros that you've helped in your amazing career. Nick Faldo, Annika Sorenstam, Dustin Johnson, Hideki Matsuyama. You have the two last Masters winners. In the 2020 Masters, the long-awaited Masters has a long-awaited champion in Dustin Johnson. We'll circle back to that because I learned that you gave Matsuyama a lesson in Denver. Am I right to tease that? Correct. We sure did. At Green Valley Ranch. Oh, at Green Valley Ranch. Yeah, I was going to ask mm-hmm. that. But before I get there, Steph Curry, have you ever seen anything quite like that in terms of eye-hand coordination? He does visual drills. Tell me about that. What does he do? He does some sports vision work where he tests his visual skills at uh, localizing things quickly. And it's some off-court work that most players have learned to do that sharpens their visual skills so that when they're on the court, they're more accurate with their assessment and more accurate with their results. So he's one of a number of players in different sports that has found ways to improve their visual skills than just playing basketball. So off-field work is important. Right. And good DNA is important. His father, Del, was a hell of a shooter, and his brother, Seth, yeah. is amazing. That helps. Yeah. But there's work ethic. There's confidence. I guess confidence comes from seeing things correctly, right? Yeah, seeing things correctly and obviously getting success and building on it, you bet. So that brings us to older golfers. Eyesight tends to diminish. The hands aren't quite as steady. What do you say to an aging athlete? Well, we kind of let them know that that's usually because of lack of use correctly and that they shouldn't accept the fact that because they're getting older, they're totally less skilled. And if they use the skill a little more wisely and with some additional training, they don't have to see such a drop. And when there is something that, you know, is pretty clearly a situation like you can't hit the ball 325 yards anymore, obviously working with the short game and putting can make up a lot of ills. So there's always a way, especially in golf, to level the field in a lot of ways. Steph Curry has aspirations to be a golfer. Do you ever see the possibility Michael Jordan tried it? Could you ever envision a guy going from basketball to golf? Isn't there often a love affair between those two sports? Oh, I agree. I think that golfers especially play tournament golf that we're relating to with Seth and Michael Jordan. There's no substitute for playing and practicing. And when you're really growing up playing separate sports, I think is extremely valuable for trying to get kids to be a one-sport person too early, I disagree with. 
but along the same line, the older you get and the more into the big leagues, the more you've got to play, and there's no substitute for that. If they don't have time enough to play and get tournament tough, it's difficult. I think John Brody was one of the right. last great dual sport athletes that I really enjoyed. And, and what, a, what a great memory. I hadn't thought about him in a long time. He played quarterback brilliantly for the 49ers, and then he competed on the senior tour. I think he even won an event, or did he? Yeah, he sure did. And I remember watching him. He was actually in a, a group with Clayton Cole, who qualified at the Intermittent Golf Course. And I was watching them and got a chance to talk a little bit with John. And then obviously, he's lived out here for many years. Sadly, had some debilitating strokes, but one heck of an athlete and a great guy. You brought up a great memory. I played a lot with you at Inverness. Those were the days. I'm trying to remember, had they just opened? How was it that you and I played so much golf in Inverness? Well, it had just opened, and they had a chance for us to join, and so we did, and it was between there and Welshire. We uh, played played way too much golf, Greg. (laughs) It was a lot of fun, and you are such a good person. I have to get to the Denver part of this story. Most of my listeners are Colorado people. I consider you a Colorado person. Thank you. How did it come about that Hideki Matsuyama met with you during the pandemic in Denver? He had just come from Murfield Village, was not putting well. And believe it or not, a photographer, a Japanese photographer, watched me give a lesson to another Japanese player, a lady, and he never forgot that. And he was pretty much following Matsuyama most of the time. So he into their little gray matter that there's a guy that he thought Matsuyama should see. And by golly, he and his contingency of trainer and agent slash interpreter and caddy came out from Murfield and met me at Green Valley Ranch. And we worked there for a good part of the day before he went on to L.A. and then Pebble Beach for the Open. So it was about two weeks before the Open. So I know Green Valley Ranch a little bit. They have a good practice area, but was there a possibility yes. that if I showed up there to just do some putting, I would have been on the green with you and Hideki Matsuyama? Uh, you could have been, yes. I mean, did you do it just on the putting green right there at Green Valley Ranch, or did you go to some private area? Yeah, we did right there, and right there by the parking lot. Oh, that is so cool. For people who don't know, He's been a phenom since he was a teenager, kind of went Mm -hmm. into a rut the last three or four years, surprising that he wasn't winning more. I guess it was his putting because he just won the Masters, but it was a doubleheader for you because you had coached Dustin Johnson right before he won the previous Masters. My God, Craig. And it's a Masters for Matsuyama. First player from Japan. To win this Masters tournament in the 85th plane, a country celebrates, a dream realized, and what a moment for that man. What a climax (laughs) for your career. Yeah, we've, we've been very fortunate and have had some good success, and we appreciate people recognizing our ability to help them, and so it's just a matter of 
uh, hooking up. So we've been we've been blessed, definitely. I wonder how many of these calls you get. They must come unexpectedly, kind of like my business as an attorney. People don't anticipate they might need one, or like a doctor, you are the putt doctor. How does that call go? Hey, it's Hideki Matsuyama's people. He needs an emergency putting lesson. Can you meet yep. him somewhere in America? And then he takes a private plane to meet you? Well, he took a regular plane, the whole contingency did, from Columbus, Ohio. And we got on the green and his interpreters talk about his problems. And then from there, we did a little computer analysis and then did uh, some setup pictures and it was pretty clear that his setup was not as consistent as he thought it was because he's usually pretty meticulous, but we proved to him that he wasn't as meticulous as he could be, and he had a really good breakout season putting for the rest of the year, and then next season, the COVID season, he wouldn't end up changing everything. So we saw him in TPC Scottsdale right before they shut the tour down, and it was pretty clear he had lost the plot and gone back to some things that weren't so successful. So through his agent now, we've been working with getting his set up where I'd like it. And quite honestly, Craig, it was the first time I, I haven't watched him a lot because I've been busy, but it was the first time I saw him really going back to measuring his distance from the ball with his putter from the ball to the toe line and going through some of the things we wanted him to do to get into a proper setup. From there, he can use his immense talent. But before, he was having trouble lining up and getting his eyes in the proper position. So target line never looked right for him. So he was very meticulous in the Masters, and I think that was that. And his short game got him to win. He also was uh, first in short game scrambling, which you got to witness hole after hole. It was unbelievable. Does he draw the Farnsworth line on the ball? Yes, he does. In fact, he gave me a nice bow when I told him I was the one that invented that. You should get the credit. You should get a royalty. All the golf ball manufacturers put it on the ball if you want it now. Tell everybody how you came up with that. And do you feel like you don't get the proper credit for the Farnsworth line? Well, you know, as an eye doctor, we obviously had some visual abilities to take to golf. And quite honestly, Clayton Cole from Cherry Hills was a pro there at the time. And so he graciously allowed me to work with the members of Cherry Hills for several years. And we went through ideas and concepts, throwing some out and adding some. And that was uh, the big catalyst for the book, See It and Sink It. it, was mainly working with the Cherry Hills members and Clayton Cole. And we found and two real valuable things. One, that people would line up better with the line on the ball. And number two, they were a lot better with speed control when they used visualization and real-time accuracy, understanding that level putts may take four seconds to go 30 feet, but uphill would take less and downhill would take more because you don't hit it as hard. And most people had it backwards. And so getting them to be more of a better visualizer helped them with their speed control. And then the book was born after Faldo won the Masters and gave us credit for the 96 Masters win and he's putting. So that book then took off and pretty much started my second career. Right, but this has to be big, especially in Japan where they're golf crazy. Uh, Once the pandemic's over, 
I'm surprised you don't have a Japanese version of the puttdoctor.com up there right now. Yeah, yeah, I've already been approached by a few, a few people talking about doing something in Asia, and uh, I, I'm just sitting there listening, right? Who knows, Greg? Oh, my gosh. Where well, you go from here, right? <laughs> talk to us about you are so famous now, deservedly so. You've brought a lot of enjoyment to people. You've combined a great skill with great sport. I just think you are amazing. When you describe yourself, do you say I'm from Colorado or from Indiana? How do you feel about Colorado and how often do you get back? Well, we feel great about Colorado. We're there every summer. We'll be there again in June through August, teaching some at Common Ground with Elena King and also Lone Tree and up at Green Valley Ranch. So we kind of are very blessed to have those pros and clubs grant us an ability to work with their facility. And so we're real blessed to be able to see some people from Colorado and work with them. I have some people flying in from out of state, obviously, but we get to see a lot of Coloradans and we love it. I like to play Common Ground on Tuesdays. Maybe you can join our group this summer. You never know. As busy as I've been, I'm going to take some time off, Craig. God, I need to recharge the batteries. <laughs> I don't blame you at all, but what do you think about Colorado golf? And when you come back to Denver, you must be amazed at the way it's grown. Oh, boy. I tell you, the little time I had last summer, you couldn't get on. I mean, the pandemic, there's been no sport, I think, that's benefited more than golf. And if you hadn't been doing better and making hay during this pandemic, you weren't paying attention. Golf-wise, it's been fantastic. It really has. It's been a respite. And I'm glad to see golf come back. Do you think it's back to stay? And what do you make of this top golf phenomenon? I love it. And can I just say that one of the best things about living in America and in Colorado is that you can go to a putting green on your own, work on your putting, maybe listen to a podcast, and it's free. Isn't that the most unbelievably great thing about golf? I've always enjoyed that. I agree. I agree. It's got a lot of opportunity. It's a beautiful look at what man has done with nature. And you get to go to some beautiful places and meet some beautiful people. So I don't know if a sport that's like it. You're right, Craig. And when I did some good putting, it was back in the day when I'd spend hours with my buddies playing, you know, 25 cent putting games. And it was fun. It was competitive. To me, there was uh-huh. nothing that got you more ready to really play than to have a good putting buddy and have a match on the putting green. You bet. You bet. Those are great little games to play and test your ability to handle pressure and get some experience also. So I love games. Perfect. Now, Matsuyama and Dustin Johnson, am I recalling correctly that both of them look at the putt and then just get over it and they putt it without practice strokes? You know, if a person wants to do a practice stroke, I want them to do a practice stroke that mimics what they're going to actually do. Most people just say, hey, I'm just trying to get warmed up and get the muscles going. And I state to them that if that's the case, I'd rather they wouldn't do it at all and just stand up and visualize the putt and then let their body respond to the picture as opposed to going through the motions that don't relate to what they're doing. So I 
kind of encourage players to do less practice strokes and a lot more visualization. And generally, they have found that to be helpful. So that's my two cents with it worth. And the golf industry, you're a big part of it. I'm wondering about backyard greens. Are those helpful or hurtful to people? Because sometimes you get used to a totally different kind of texture and then it does not translate to the course. Do you recommend backyard greens? I bet people have approached you to be a part of that. Oh, I've done some backyard greens years ago in Denver with Kenny Knox and Gary Hallberg company. But, you know, it's like any practice. If you if you practice smart and you have a set conditions for alignment and speed and recognize uphill and downhill putts on a green like backyard green, if you can approximate that. But most of the backyard greens, at least if you would use some device to help you appreciate what straight is, Believe it or not, in testing athletes as an optometrist, it's amazing how many eyes, when they you ask them to look at a hole 10 feet away, find that their eyes divert out to the right or to the left, and they end up localizing the two eyes a little left or a little right of the target. And so training that system through eye exercises or a chalk line or a string line helps them and most people don't realize that's why they make a lot of putts when they putt on a chalk line or on a string because their accuracy of aim and their eyes tracking down the line are as we say reality not illusions that they have without the help of a, of a connection between near space the ball and far space the cup you've got all those devices at puttdoctor.com i urge people to go there find out how handsome craig is most guys named Craig are pretty handsome, but that's a great club. The Palms in Palm Desert. How did you find that place? And is that where you make your home too? Yeah, luckily I was just kind of transitioning off of PGA West Academy there and the course was starting to be built. And so I asked one of the principals, J.D. Ebersberger, who was recruiting if be a possibility by coming over and teaching and Lo and behold, we had a lunch meeting two days later, and he gave me a deal I couldn't refuse, so I've been there ever since, and after about four years, they built me a putting green, and then another one, so I've got some nice facilities. I'm very blessed over at the Palms. So what's your average working day like? (laughs) Generally about 7.30 to 7, sometimes with no break, but it's fun, so as a lot of my students call it, this is not work. You're having too much fun doing this. And so I'll take that moniker. I have fun talking to you. Who in the golf world is the most fun person? I mean, most golfers are pretty intense, but you've been around those amazing personalities. Who stands out in your golf memories? Famous people that you'd say, hey, Craig, if I could have you meet one or two people, you really should get to know this person. Yeah, I've been very blessed. I've got a lot of fun golfers that I've worked around and worked with. Recently, Mike Weir, just a wonderful person playing the Champions Tour. Obviously, my all-time favorite is Sir Nick Faldo. We've been friends and, and hit it off from the very moment I sat down with him for breakfast in 1995 in December at Lake Nona, and we chat frequently, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly, depending on what's happening. And most people don't appreciate him for what he is. They just think about his golf aura when he was going through his stick of 
being himself and not talking to anybody else uh, in a selfish way. But once he got off of golf in terms of playing and, and out there, people appreciate his wit, his humor, and he's a delight to be around. He spends a lot of time when he comes to the desert seeing my kids and talking to them at dinners. And so blessed to have him as a, a dear friend. Hi there, I'm Sir Nick Faldo, and I've known Doc here for nearly 20 years, and I want to tell you, he's got some really good stuff, and it's worked for me. Gosh, Sir Nick Faldo, he seems like a great yes. guy. He does a ton of television, and he always seems to bring it. You know, he doesn't have a down mm -hmm. day. He loves the game of golf, and he can be critical of the players, but he doesn't really rip them like Johnny Miller did. He seems like a brilliant person, right? He must have a very high IQ, just like you. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you, I would love to have had his skills, his business sense, you name it. He's a well-rounded person, does a great job with his family, takes good care of the kids, and obviously a great asset to golf. Well, so are you. Craig Farnsworth, thanks for your valuable time. Go out there, give about 20 lessons today. And I can't wait to yeah. see you in Colorado or maybe out in the desert if I ever get out there, okay? Look forward to it, Craig Silverman, and let's uh, play a little golf. Be back there in the middle of June, and, and uh, we'll find a time. Young man, thanks for all Love the great it. work you do. Thank right. you. Say hi to the family. Bye, Craig. Well, same to you. Thanks. Say hello, Trish. Bye-bye. Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys and girls basketball and girls soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, get a great high quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP and help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. Gosh, I had another great week practicing law. So many good results for my clients, that makes me happy. If you'd like to be happy, give me a call, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. I'm getting good at this. Give me a call, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for your problem or case, I bet I know the right one, and I will tell you who it is. Thank you. 
gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bacon. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. I told you, Craig Farnsworth and Nick Faldo, they're buddies. Anybody who could help me with my putting like that to win a Masters, that would be my buddy too. Thank you, buddy Craig Farnsworth. You were terrific. Nick and Craig, what a pair. Dave Gunders and Craig. I love that guy. What a musician. His song, Your Way Too, perfect for the two billboards that were brought to you by Linda Sue Smolin and what a session we had in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thanks for listening. Until next Saturday. Bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.